All right, ladies, I'm going to begin our Bible study this afternoon, and I'm going to begin with a greeting. It's Shalom Alahem. <laughs> That's Hebrew for peace be to you. It is a blessing of well-being on others. I'm so excited to launch a new women's Bible study this year. Um, and the title, as you can see, is The Heart of Conversation, Lessons from Messiah Jesus. And in case you haven't heard, I was in Israel for 12 days this year, from May 28th through June 8th. But it wasn't an easy trip to get there. Uh, we th flew 5,680 miles in a 10-hour and 30-minute flight from Newark, New Jersey, to the Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. Prior to that, we had an 11-hour layover in Newark. And prior to that, we had about a five-hour flight from Duluth to Minneapolis to Newark. So when we arrived in Israel, we definitely had jet lag. <laughs> but it was well worth the jet lag. Because my experience in Israel, in the Bible lands, is probably the world's best Bible commentary. It's one thing to learn geography from an atlas, but it's another thing to experience the visual impact of the hills and the valleys and the deserts and the seas and the rivers. The manifestation of God's divine presence has not only a recorded history as we see in the Bible, but also a physical geography. From north to south and east to west, Israel offers an experience of biblical history like nowhere else, where the Bible comes to life, and to see also the stories where they were made. It's interesting about stories. Stories are like people. Both have homes. I'm a writing teacher, and I tell my writing students when I assign them a personal narrative, which is a story of their life, I say to them, setting is important to your story. Because who you are and how you think and how you react and what you do and how you communicate is uniquely tied to where you are from and the places you've been. No one can know us until they can really understand the places we have been the places that teach us about ourselves. And the same is true about the Lord Jesus. My husband, Barry, our son, Greg, and daughter-in-law, Stacy, my friend, Faye, and another friend, Tracy, plus 46 others, took a tour of Israel. And we walked the trails the Lord Jesus walked. And we saw the scenery he had looked upon and we hiked the deserts that he had traveled, and we sat on the southern steps of the temple where he had taught. It's a trip that keeps on giving, and that is why this year we want to give to you the experience of Israel through our stories and through our photos and, of course, from the Bible. So, grab your Bible. <laughs> Put on your walking shoes and put on a backpack. And don't forget yourself to put a water bottle in that backpack because we're going to hike 
and we're going to climb to many places, from Jerusalem to the sparkling waters of the Mediterranean Sea, to the Galilee, through the Judean wilderness, and then have a float in the Dead Sea. And that is why I'm dressed as I am today. I have on my hiking vest and my jeans because I'm prepared to take you on that journey. But I have to warn you, this journey is not for the faint-hearted. It's hot outside. Some days it's 108 degrees. And the sun never hides behind the clouds. And you walk and you climb and you sometimes stumble, stumble over stony, slippery paths. Sometimes four to five miles a day. It was interesting. Uh, after we had a hike in the Judean wilderness, in the desert of the Qumran settlement, where the ancient Essenes wrote and hid in caves the famous Dead Sea Scrolls, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time, I excitedly went to my husband, Barry, and I said to him, what was your favorite thing you saw today? And he immediately replied, the bus after our hike. <laughs> <laughs> on the final day of our tour, I was sitting on the stone steps of the place where they believe, scholars believe, the Lord Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And I was having a conversation with one of the women from our tour group. And I said to her, just being in Jerusalem doesn't make me feel any closer to God than when I'm sitting in my room with my Bible, reading the Word of God, and praying. Or I'm in my kitchen making dinner, or I'm in my car driving. And she agreed with me. You do not have to go to Israel to feel close to God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is with you by his presence and by his relational presence within you. He goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in Duluth or you're on the Iron Range or in Minneapolis or in Israel. Because we worship a person, not a place. We worship God anywhere. For God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And only those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit through faith in Christ can worship God acceptably. By God's providence, we were able to be on, in Israel on its 75th birthday. On May 13, 1948, people the world over awoke to the day thinking it was just an ordinary day for them. But it wasn't just an ordinary day. In a small room in British Mandate Palestine, Jewish statesman Ben David Ben-Gurion rose to his feet before an assembly of Jewish dignitaries and declared that Israel, after 2,000 years of displacement, was again a sovereign nation in its own land. And a mere 11 minutes later, President Harry S. Truman led the United States in recognizing the rebirth of the state of Israel. Now homeless wanderers for more than 2,000 years could breathe a sigh of relief. The Jews, at long last, could begin to go home. Israel is a modern miracle of God, ladies. 
There is no other way to explain its rebirth and prosperity in the face of constant opposition. Getting to this point has not been easy for Israel, but the hand of God has been evident throughout their history, even before 1948. I notice God's love for the Jewish people, and it's clearly demonstrated in the chronicles of his faithfulness as we traced the fulfilling of his prophecies. It's a story of amazing grace, and that's why the story of Israel is so important to us as believers in this age of grace, because none of us have been faithful to God. All of us are sinners who deserve condemnation, Yet God's relationship with Israel is a manifestation of his unmerited love. And in that regard, the Jewish people remind us as well as a witness of what it means to have a relationship with God. Any God created by our minds would have given up on Israel a long time ago and on us, but not the true God of the universe. He's faithful in fulfilling every prophecy and every promise given to Israel and the church and us. The population of Israel is moving toward 9 million. And about 1 million live in Jerusalem. Israel is equal in size to the state of New Jersey. And Israel is ancient. But yet, it's a continuous process of rediscovery and renewal and archaeological sites are being dug and found and open to the public daily. In fact, you probably just read in the news a couple weeks ago about the excavation at the Pool of Siloam. The Pool of Siloam was discovered in actually 2004, and they've been excavating there ever since, and we saw some of that excavation. But the last two weeks, it unearthed eight steps going down to the Pool of Siloam that hadn't been seen or, or looked at for 2,000 years since the time of Christ. And as they're excavating the Pool of Siloam, they're saying, my goodness, this is a huge pool. It's 1.25 acres. That's a large pool. So it was for us like having one foot in the past and one foot in the future. The Jewish people are indeed returning home to Israel. Not necessarily in belief, but God is leading them there. And cranes are silhouettes in the sky as high-rise apartment after high-rise apartment are being constructed. And since 1948, over 4 million Jews have been gathered back to their homeland. And they're still coming. We saw them at the airport. The Jews' return from their lands to which they have been exiled is called Aliyah. That's a Hebrew word. And it means to ascend or to rise up or the act of going up. When Jewish people immigrate to Israel, they're making Aliyah. This series in, on Israel and Messiah Jesus owes a great deal to many Bible scholars and teachers and pastors and friends whose passion for the word of God has affected mine. But there are several in particular that I would like to acknowledge at this time. And the first is Dr. Fuchenbaum. He is one of the foremost authorities in the, on the nation of Israel. And he's a Messianic Jewish believer. 
He's founder and director of Aerial Ministries, an organization which prioritizes the evangelization of Jews in an effort to bring them to the view that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's a popular speaker all over the world, and I've been privileged to listen to some of his lectures right here at Duluth Bible Church. And I've read many of his commentaries and also his books. Uh, Dr. Fruchenbaum was in Israel during the final days of our tour, and he attended our closing night dinner, which was really special for us. I would also like to acknowledge Dr. Randall Price. He's a theologian, archaeologist, and research author of over 40 books. He's also founder and president of World of the Bible. He has led 115 Israeli tours, and we were one of them. He has an historical, cultural, and geographical context behind scripture and prophecy with his tours. After attending his presentations here at Duluth Bible Church in 2019, and I had a conversation with him, I decided I was going to register for one of his tours. Well, then you know what happened in 2020. COVID struck, and no one was doing any traveling. And then Israel had been shut down for a couple years after that. So I thought, well, maybe the Lord doesn't want me to go to Israel. And lo and behold, this spring, the country of Israel opened up, and the opportunity was there, and we could go. I was so thankful for that. I also want to recognize his wife, Beverly. She accompanied Dr. Price on the tour, and she shares his enthusiasm for archaeology and world of the Bible. And I especially want to honor and recognize my Savior, Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus means the world to me, and perhaps you feel the same way. He's my friend, he's my companion, he's my counselor, and he's my resting place. He becomes more precious to me throughout the years. And no matter where I go, or what I do, or where I look, if there's anything true, or if there's anything good, or if there's anything praiseworthy in my life, I trace it back to my lovely Lord Jesus Christ and his great love for me, which he proved at Calvary. We love him because he first loved us. I would like to read a few verses from 1 John chapter 4. You can either listen to me as I read, or you can follow along. And I'm going to be reading 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, but love is, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Thank you, Holy Father, for your precious word, which you've exalted even above your name. I pray, Father, we would place great importance and emphasis on your word. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity I have today to not only share Israel and the sights, but more importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ with these women. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength 
and my Redeemer. Well, I'm going to begin now with our lesson, lesson one, which is a conversation of Messiah. Now, as I designed this series and I was thinking about it this summer, I not only wanted to share the places that we have visited in Israel, but I wanted to share the Lord Jesus' conversations at those places because I think he has much to share and show us about how to have conversation in an age of incivility and isolation. Following my last year's series on the power of our thoughts, I thought this series would be a natural progression because we are now in a society that is dependent on texting and meme sharing and Snapchats and YouTube and Instagram and TikTok trends. As one young woman shared, nobody talks anymore. They share TikTok trends, but they don't talk. In July, friends and I had a conversation on a pontoon boat about conversation. And I remember it so well, it was a beautiful evening as we slowly meandered around the lake to talk about talk. (laughs) And we asked these questions. Does anyone actually converse with one another anymore? Uh, Not text, but actually talk face to face. It seems like conversations have become digital and we hardly know how to talk. It seems as if we've lost the skill of conversation. So it led to this question we had. How can we better connect with others through meaningful conversations? We also talked about how disconnection has affected our young people. As a former college instructor and college administrator, I saw the effects. Gen Z, which is, uh, I'd say, the adults ages 18 through 22, have been referred to as the loneliest generation. The 2018 Harvard School of Education Health Study reports that 61% of young people feel serious loneliness, and nearly half of Americans report sometimes always feeling alone. So here's a scoop. (laughs) Everyone wants a sense of belonging. Everyone wants to be seen to be noticed, to be acknowledged, everyone. So when I duck out of sight, when I see someone I don't want to talk to, or I stick in my earbuds, I can be protecting myself from a socially awkward moment, but I'm robbing someone else of being heard and of being seen. I think this cartoon depicts it so well. This woman says to her friend, according to my fitness tracker, I've taken 2,300 steps avoiding people. (laughs) And yet here's the problem. But we are all creatures of habit. It is far too easy to stay in the familiar ruts we dig for ourselves. So I think we can all become better with the art of conversation. Sorry about my plan words. Couldn't help myself there. No matter how young or old we are, how smart we are, how introverted or extroverted we feel, I see as I look into the word of God that conversations matter to God. 
And the Lord Jesus shows us a way to communicate and share his love and compassion with others. And I believe, dear ladies, that our conversations can quell the epidemic of loneliness, not only felt by our teenagers, but also felt by older adults as well, found within our churches or in our college campuses or our schools or workplaces or our homes. As believers, we are called to connect with one another in loving and healing ways, the kind of conversations that we're all secretly yearning for. And God delights in using places and people the world would see as insignificant to be the vessels through which he displays his power, grace, and love. So let's begin to see how the Lord Jesus has conversations. And we must begin at the beginning. And I'm beginning here in Mark 1, which says this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. What was that good news? The good news was that the Messiah, Yeshua in Hebrew, the anointed one, the hope for redeemer of Israel, the king whom God will provide Israel has arrived. The Jewish people should have known exactly what that meant because they had read their Old Testament, the word of God from the prophets. Because my Messiah is the only person in history whose lineage and birth and character and teaching and character, career and reception and death, burial and resurrection were recorded in 300 prophecies at least 500 years before his birth. His childhood, his life, his ministry, where he lived, where he came from, where he went, his personality, his miracles, his betrayal, all from the pages of the Old Testament. It had set the stage. And upon the completion of Malachi's prophecy, the last book of the Old Testament, there was no written or spoken word from God for 430 years until John the Baptist broke on the scene. And he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John was the one, the voice in the Judean wilderness, appointed by God to prepare the way for the Lord, the Messiah. The kingdom is now offered in the person of a king, of whom John is the forerunner. And by calling the nations to repentance, and that means change of mind, John is preparing the people for the Messiah to trust him and to believe on him. And the Jewish audience of that day would automatically have understood John to be speaking of the Messianic kingdom. Described in great detail by the prophets in the Old Testament, this kingdom would be earthy and messianic, not some nebulous spiritual kingdom of God's rule in one's heart. And because of his preaching, the people were drawn to this strange man who, like Elijah, walked around in clothes made from camel's hair. And he wore a leather belt around his waist. He was a desert dweller. He lived alone and he, he ate food that included grasshopper and wild honey. Now, people have asked us, what kind of food did you eat in Israel? Well, we did not eat grasshopper, I'll tell you that. <laughs> but we did eat Peter's fish, which is a tilapia or a white fish in a smoky, 
kind of spicy tomato sauce. We ate figs, apricots, dates, melons, mangoes, bowls of freshly made hummus, and bowls and bowls of olives at every meal, even breakfast. And bread is an integral part of the Israeli diet, and not a meal goes by without it. Boy, did I enjoy eating that shiny, golden, braided challah bread. It's a crunchy crust, and it's fluffy and inside, and I just couldn't help going back for more. And I did not count carbs in Israel, <laughs> I'll tell you that. I thought, hey, I'm hiking three to four miles a day, so I got that covered. And then Israeli salad. It's made with cucumbers and tomatoes and finely diced, served with fresh parsley and olive oil and lemon and feta cheese. And then there is the falafel, which is typical of the Middle Eastern food. It's small, deep-fried balls of chickpea mixed with garlic and parsley and other herbs and spices. And you can either eat these alone and dip them in a sauce, or they're quite often they're stuffed in pita bread with salad and the ever-present hummus. <laughs> and I have to share the desserts with you. We would have rows and rows of desserts at some of the places we'd eat. But here are a few. Baklava, which is a rich, sweet pastry made with layers and layers of nuts and thick sugar syrup and honey. And then we'd have halva, which is various kinds of nuts and sugar. It's crumbly, and it's dry, and we would take that with us because it would give us energy as we hiked throughout the day. And ladies, if you like coffee, there is nothing like Israeli coffee. It's kind of a dark Turkish kind of coffee, and it, it's ex coffee is extremely valued in Israel. We found that out, which is great for me. Uh, Israelis drink anywhere on average three to four cups a day. And you will not find a Starbucks in Israel. They pulled out in 2003, only after two years. Israel is the only country in the world where coffee is already so good that Starbucks went bankrupt, trying to break into the local market. Israelis did not like the American filtered coffee. And my husband, who dislikes most vegetables and all things green, wasn't particularly thrilled with the Mediterranean cuisine. But he ate lamb brains to be adventurous. And in June, when I, I was teaching my Bible school students, I shared this story with him. And one seventh grader, he raised his hand and he said, well, Mrs. Helen, at least he won't become a zombie. <laughs> so back to the Jordan River. John met Jesus face to face at the river where John was baptizing people. And John baptized those who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And as John saw Jesus approaching, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God is a God who loves, ladies. God is a Redeemer who saves. And God promised to Israel that he would bring a Messiah who would not only lead his people into righteousness, but he would also die an atoning sacrifice for their sins. And not for their sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And God chose Israel to be the channel through which the Messiah would come. For salvation is of the Jews, the Lord Jesus said, and our Savior was a Jew. 
Now, it's not just the event, but it's also the place of Jesus' baptism. Remember how place is so important to the story? The setting is the Jordan River. This is where Joshua transitioned into his role as Israel's leader after Moses. This is where Israel walked through to the promised land. And this is where Jesus transitioned from his private life into his public ministry. And at Jesus' baptism, two things happened. For the first time since the angels sang of his birth, heaven commented directly on him. And the Spirit of God descended on him in the form of a dove, and the voice of God the Father verbally identified Jesus as a messianic son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, he said. And second, the Holy Spirit anointed the Lord Jesus for service. Remember what Messiah means? The anointed one. Jesus was about 30 years old when these things happened. Here is a photo that we took of the Jordan River. It's one of the most famous rivers in the world, the river of life for the people of Israel. It provides one-third to one-half of all the water for many fertile valleys and fields south and north of the Sea of Galilee. In the past and in now, the Israelis are totally dependent on this river. The river is very fresh, and the sun sparkles on the water. You can hear birds singing in the background, and there's an abundance of plant life and trees, and it's just a very quiet and serene place. It's not a very wide river. It's only about 50 to 75 feet wide, but it's a very long river. It's about 200 miles long, and it runs from the north of Israel, Mount Hermon, at about 1,500 feet above sea level, all the way down to the Dead Sea at 1,400 feet below sea level. And the water comes from the natural springs and from the melting snow way up there in Mount Hermon. And the Jordan River is mentioned in the Bible over 180 times. Nahum the leper was healed here. And Elisha, <laughs> he made the head of an axe float here. And John the baptizer baptized here. And my son, Greg, was baptized in the Jordan River at our tour. Greg shared his testimony of God's amazing grace and his salvation and in his life with our tour group, and others there were listening as he spoke. And he quoted Ephesians 2, 8, 9. He says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he went on to say, Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Baptism cannot save you. Church ritual cannot save you. Your good works cannot save you. Only faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross can save you. And then he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A believer's baptism is a picture our identification of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. For Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. Please notice, if you can see, the fourth person in line uh, watching Greg as he was being baptized. And he, you can see a blue shirt sticking out of the, of the robe. That is a Messianic Jewish believer. And he became a very good friend of ours uh, throughout the tour. 
And so we were thankful that we had the opportunity to meet him, to hear his story, and hear his story of the testimony of the grace of God, and how he, as a Jew, saw through the scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah, the Savior of the world. After Jesus' baptism, he begins a very active ministry of proclaiming himself as the Messiah King and offers a messianic kingdom. So Jesus is now going to travel from city to city, synagogue to synagogue, and he quickly became known throughout all of the region of Galilee. And Jesus met all kinds of people. He had more than 40 meetings with people and conversations with individuals. From his circle of disciples to women to people with physical or emotional needs, Roman officials and Pharisees. He dined with the rich, and he had pity on those who lived in sin. And he helped the poor and the needy. His heart went out to the multitudes. He says they are like a sheep without a shepherd. And he was a great teacher. So people came by the thousands to listen to him. They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. The majority of his conversations took place in the workplace, interestingly enough, with fishermen and with a tax collector and a Samaritan woman. Many of his conversations took place in homes, but few in religious settings. Jesus talked with people about spiritual issues where they were most familiar. And time and time again, the Lord Jesus sought out those who were lonely who thought they had nothing to give. Whether it was a woman who was normally afraid to go out in public, or a tax collector who nobody else wanted to sit by. Whether it was a prostitute who went into a party she should never have been at. Repeatedly, the Lord Jesus came to individuals and said, I will talk to you. Research says that even a cell phone on the table affects conversation. Have we all been guilty of that? That when we go to visit with somebody, there's our phone right there, ready for action. Well, the presence of a cell phone, they say, creates distractions in both both conversation partners. Well, the Lord Jesus did not have a cell phone. But whenever he talked to someone, he or she had his full attention. I appreciate that. I appreciate when I'm visiting with somebody, I know I have his or her full attention. And because he was so attentive to what they were saying, he could teach them a truth about himself and God. He knew what they were receptive to. He knew the best way to help people was not to judge them, not to shame them, but respect them and to love them and to enjoy them. Now, if I should ask you... Who are the two most important conversations you can think about in the scriptures that Jesus had with an individual? What two people would come to your mind as you think of the the two most important conversations you could identify? Did Nicodemus come to your mind? Did the woman at the well come to your mind? Good. (laughs) That's good, because that's what I'm going to share with you. Those two conversations. And it's interesting because of the conversations, the settings are different. The time of day is different in the settings as well. But the message is the same. And Jesus comes to the individual and says, I have eternal life. 
I am the way and the truth and life. And he brings us to them. So the conversation with Nicodemus, and here's the setting. It's in Jerusalem, and it's at night. Nicodemus came to Messiah Jesus by night so that somewhere in the darkness he might find the light. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Now, why did he come to Jesus at night? Several ideas. Uh, Jesus was quite busy during the day. This was Passover time. So maybe he thought a private conversation with Jesus wasn't possible during the day. Or maybe it was the element of secrecy or even fear that drove him to say to Lord Jesus, can I meet you at night? Messiah Jesus always left room in his schedule for interruptions. This is another thing I've noticed as I've traced his conversations. He usually met people on their own turf and was interested in establishing common ground with them. Now you can take your Bible and you can turn to John 3 as I go through uh, some of this conversation with you. And while you're turning in your Bible to John 3, I'm going to share with you the city of Jerusalem because that's where the setting of so many of Jesus' conversations took place. And this is a picture of Jerusalem at night. This is a picture from our hotel, which was called the Dan Jerusalem Hotel. And it was taken from, our ter- from the terrace at the top of the hotel. And if you look very carefully, you look in the night sky there, you will see some satellites hovering over. And they're functioning there to protect Israel, its infrastructure and its citizens, and also its visitors. And it's hovering over in this space that's called the Iron Dome, if you will, or sometimes referred to as David's sling. And people have asked me, did you feel safe in Israel? And my answer right away is this, yes. Whether it was the Iron Dome above that we can look and we could hear the jets flying up around about us, or it was the um, Israel Defense Forces, quite often at many corners of the streets, I felt very safe in Jerusalem and in Israel. Here is a day photo of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It's the best place to stand to get a bird's eye view of Jerusalem. It's perched on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, and it's visible. And so when we stood on the Mount of Olives, down below to our right, we could see the Garden of Gethsemane. And to the city of David, we could see that off to our left. To the old city, we could see the Temple Mount and the glistening Dome of the Rock, which then is separated from the Mount of Olives by the Kidron Valley or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The psalmist describes Jerusalem in this way. It's beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth. And I thought, what a fitting description. It's a steep ascent as you approach Jerusalem. One always goes up to Jerusalem. So when you're reading the scriptures that the disciples and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, that's what it's referring to. The city stands on the highest point of the backbone of Israel at 2,575 feet. It is surrounded by seven mountains. We probably refer to them as hills, but they refer to them as mountains, running north and south between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. And as we were on our tour bus and we were ascending literally up to go to Jerusalem, 
we sang the song that pilgrims sing when they get their first sight of Jerusalem, and it's called the Holy City. Are you familiar with that song? It's, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, lift up your gates and sing. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Hosanna to your king. Jerusalem is one of the oldest cities on earth. Uh, this is a place where Melchizedek met Abraham. This is where Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah. And this is where Solomon met the Queen of Sheba. Jerusalem is the center of Israel and the whole earth in the same way that your heart is the center of your body. So Ezekiel writes, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries around her. Dr. Price wrote that Jerusalem is a city at the center. It is the center of mankind's hopes and God's purposes. God loves it. Satan hates it. Jesus wept over it. The Holy Spirit descended in it. The nations are drawn to it, and Christ will return and reign in it. Indeed, the destiny of the world is tied to the future of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the only city in the world where God has chosen to place his name for her role in the history of Israel, the life of the Lord Jesus, and the events of his return. Can you notice the shimmering, pale, golden limestone buildings? That's called Jerusalem stone. It's found in the Jerusalem area and the Judean hills in Israel. And the stone is used all over Jerusalem, and it's what gives that city its magnificent, timeless look. It's just beautiful. The stone has been used in buildings since biblical times, and the most famous structure that is still standing of Jerusalem stone is the western wall of the temple, sometimes referred to as the Wailing Wall. And do you see those whitewashed tombstones? Those are the whitewashed tombstones the Lord Jesus referred to when he was talking to the Pharisees. This is the largest Jewish cemetery in the world. It's over 3,000 years old. It has 150,000 graves on the mountain slope. And it's been in use since King David's time. Now, prominent biblical figures are buried here. Great statesmen are buried here and religious leaders. And they're buried with their feet facing the temple mount so they can easily rise and walk straight ahead to the temple as they are hoped for the coming of the Messiah. It's too hot to bring flowers to the graves, so people lay rocks to commemorate their family's life or to mark their visit. So back to Nicodemus and his conversation. And he came to Jesus and what he had heard and what he had seen during the Passover at Jerusalem. It had been such a busy time at the city as Jews made pilgrimages to the temple for the annual celebration of Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. And Nicodemus was probably the most learned Jewish teacher in all of Israel. He had been leader of one of the rabbinic academies in Jerusalem, and he met with Jesus to hear him out. Nicodemus had expectations of how this conversation would go. And he begins this way. He goes, Rabbi, uh, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one is able to do these miracles you do unless God is with him. Well, 
Nicodemus addresses Jesus in a very respectful manner, Rabbi. And Nicodemus was the elder of the two by more than 40 years. This conversation was a real conversation, the first real conversation the Messiah had with a leading member of the Pharisees. Because they believe that anyone born a Jew automatically has a right to enter the kingdom of God. Well, they were children of Abraham, which made them sufficient to inherit the kingdom, or so they thought. By the time of Jesus, there were more than 6,000 Pharisees, and they were looking for a Messiah who would follow all the new facets of the 4,187 facets of the Mishnah law. And the Messiah would make new ones, of course, so they thought. The Messiah must be a Pharisee. He would be in submission to the laws of Mishnah. Anyone who was not a Pharisee under Mishnah authority could not possibly be the Messiah. So that's why Nicodemus came to Jesus with questions. As we follow the conversation, notice how Jesus invested in Nicodemus. He was interested in the outcome of what Nicodemus shared with him and expressed concern about his life. The Lord Jesus devotes time and energy because he cares what happens to Nicodemus. And he listens to Nicodemus to encourage him and to express empathy about what he was going through. And I truly believe that Nicodemus felt this connection and this warmth of the Lord Jesus so he was able to open up to him. Jesus talked to Nicodemus about eternal life and the kind of life that God gives. And Jesus expressed absolute certainty when he said to Nicodemus, and you can notice this in verse 3, I can assure you of this truth. I can assure you of this truth. Jesus' authority to speak came from knowing God personally. And he said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, this was not what Nicodemus had expected to hear. So Nicodemus asked questions. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 9. He asked how an elderly person like himself could be born physically a second time. And I really find this so loving of the Lord Jesus. He did not laugh at him when he made that statement. He was very patient, and he answers him. And so now the conversation shifts, and Nicodemus becomes like this, and he listens now more than he talks. And so the Lord Jesus picks up the conversation and he says, No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. What he said to others was literally God's truth, is what he was saying. He came directly from heaven with the secrets of heaven to share with us. And he said to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may have eternal life. Well, Nicodemus knew this story from the Old Testament. As Moses raised a bronze snake on a pole for a cure of punishment of disobedience by the children of Israel, the people looked at it, and their thoughts were turned to God, and by that power of God, whom they had trusted, they were healed, physically healed from their diseases. And Jesus must be lifted up on a cross. And when people turn their thoughts to him and believe on him, they are spiritually healed and find eternal life, because eternal life is a present, permanent, possession. 
The very purpose of Jesus coming, he's telling Nicodemus, was not to become another religious leader, condemning those who fail to live according to a Pharisaic code of conduct. Jesus' coming to earth is summarized in the most memorable 25 words we find in this passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Lord Jesus says, it is with God that salvation started. It was God who sent his son, and he sent him because he loved the whole world. He loved you, Nicodemus. He loved others. Only God has a heart so big to love the whole world. So God loved the unlovable and the unlovely the lonely person who has no one else to love them. He loved the person who never thinks of God. He loved the person who spurns God's love and the one who rests in it. All are included in God's love. But that God provided salvation for all by itself will not save anyone because that's why we have the second half of the verse that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And until Nicodemus came to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he would not have everlasting life. The Son of God is a title that Nicodemus would have known because it's a messianic title. And Jesus said, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God sent the Lord Jesus in love. He sent him for our salvation, and that which was sent in love has become a condemnation. It is not God who is condemned, but the person who doesn't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. God only loves the person. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the one who does not believe in Jesus Christ's work on the cross to die for his sins condemns himself. He who is sent in love has become a judgment. So what matters is one's reaction to Christ, belief or unbelief. For Nicodemus, this was not something he could accept right away. It is a rare occasion when a Jewish person accepts the gospel the first time he or she hears it. When I lived in the cities, I worked for a company that was an all-Jewish company, and I was the only Gentile in the company. And it was an eye-opening experience for me. Um, I found out that the Jewish people undergo a tremendous struggle a spiritual, religious, theological, ethnic, and mental struggle to accept Jesus as Messiah, as their personal Savior. One night after we had dinner at a restaurant on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, I noticed Dr. Price was speaking with a Jewish woman who owned the restaurant. And as I walked by them, she was very animated and very loud as she was crying, and tears were coming down her cheeks. And she said this, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to believe, but I can't. I just can't. How could Messiah be conceived in such a manner? And this was not the first time Dr. Price has spoken to this woman about Jesus Christ, and I know it won't be his last. But I know that's why we must pray not only for Israel, but for the Jewish people so that they can come to the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. I pray for that woman whose face and cry I will never forget. For Satan has blinded the eyes and the minds of those 
which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is an image of God, should shine on them. Did you notice in the conversation, the Lord Jesus Christ did not come to closure in a decision for Nicodemus? The Lord Jesus seldom did. Instead, he understood it takes time for scripture to simmer, for people to own it before they can act on it, for the Holy Spirit to work on that. And not every encounter ends with faith in Christ immediately. For Nicodemus, the struggle began with this conversation, and it continued for three years. Nicodemus appears in John's gospel on two successive occasions. Uh, in John 7, he was not yet a believer, but willing to defend the Messiah's right to hear it, to be heard before being condemned. And he said, is it right to condemn a man without hearing him first to learn what he is doing? And in John 19, he openly identified himself as a believer when he took care of the Messiah's burial. Both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took care of the burial ceremony. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes for royal burial. This was a very courageous act on the part of Nicodemus. So what did happen to Nicodemus after he publicly identified with Messiah Jesus? Because of his prominence in Jewish society, he was mentioned in rabbinic writings. And as a rabbi, he did not make a living off of being a rabbi. Uh, every rabbi had to pursue a trade. And Nicodemus was a well digger. And he was probably one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. But when he became a believer in Messiah Jesus, he was reduced to poverty because no one would contract with him. The rabbis recorded this story mainly to warn other Jews against believing in Jesus. Yes, Nicodemus died physically poor, but spiritually rich. And what is so special about Nicodemus' faith in Christ Jesus the answer is the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life with God in the place God is preparing for those who trust in him. Without Christ, there is no other way to God. Jesus said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The price for each person's sin has been paid on the cross, and salvation is just one decision away. What about you? Have you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you know you have eternal life? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Lord Jesus had another conversation. This time it's a different setting. It's a different time of day. And also it is the longest conversation recorded in the scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ had with an individual. The Guinness World Record for the longest conversation is 54 hours and 4 minutes. <laughs> that record was set in a shopping mall as part of a sponsored event in 2012. Talk about a wandering conversation. But the Lord Jesus' conversation with this woman at the well was no wandering conversation. 
So the setting is a place at Jacob's well in Samaria by the city of Sychar, and Sychar was about a half a mile away from this well. And the conversation begins with a simple request for a drink of water. And then it turns into a lengthy conversation ranging over a wide array of topics from water's rights to the woman's history of scarred relationships to the place to worship God to the eternal life found in Christ and also the Messiah. The conversation is unique because of what Jesus said and where he said it. From the start, the story suggests that setting or place is important to the story. This geographical area appears many times in the Bible. Jacob uh, stopped here when he returned to the promised land. Uh, Joshua gathered all of Israel here to recite the blessings and cursings of the covenant. And here was one of the most memorable conversations of the Messiah. Now, as we begin the conversation, and you can turn to John 4, we're going to see the art of conversational turn-taking. It involves a back and forth of questions and answers of stories and thinking of conversation as a warm connection. So the Lord Jesus needs to go through Samaria because he has a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman, although he had several other route options. He was going to go to Galilee, and he could have circumvented Samaria, but he chose to go through there. It was a 30-mile trip, and I think 30 miles, my goodness, 30 miles through that desert, because I've seen it, I've tasted it, I've smelled it, I've experienced it. I thought, 30 miles. We did not stop at Jacob's well, but we drove through this region, which uh, Samaria, not named that now. It is currently under administration of the Palestinian Authority. And I know that conflict exists in this area between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Differences of religion, um, nationality, culture, and language play a major role. And in Jesus' day, there was tension between the Samaritans and the Jews, and it was particularly painful and tenacious. But the Samaritan woman had a story, and she was afraid to share her story at first. She's a nameless woman. She's been in quick successions of many divorces, and she's now uh, living in a common-law marriage. And as a result, her fellow citizens despised her. She was very lonely. And Jesus knew her story. You can't hate someone whose story you know. We can take courage from the fact that people are longing to be in conversation again. We are hungry for a chance to talk. People want to tell their story and are willing to listen to yours. People want to talk about their concerns and their struggles. Too many of us feel isolated, strange, or invisible. Conversation helps end that. And the Lord Jesus knew that. When Jesus and the disciples came to the fork in the road, Jesus sat down to rest, and he was tired from that journey. And as he sat there, a Samaritan woman came to the well in the shadow of Mount Gerizim, about 2,000 years earlier, the um, patriarch Jacob had dug this well to a depth of 100 feet to ensure that it would never run dry. If you went to that well today, you could draw water from that well and you could drink it because it's clear 
and refreshing to drink. And the Lord Jesus had a conversation with her, and he engages in it, and he first allows the woman to talk about herself, which is a great way to begin conversations, may I say. It's to allow the other person to talk. So often we're so involved in our own lives, we just want to spill it out and let it out there. But the Lord Jesus allowed her to share what was on her mind and what was bothering her. So he was sitting by the well when she came to draw water. The disciples had walked ahead to a nearby town to get food. And the conversation starts on the sixth hour, which is the hottest day, hour of the day. It's around noontime. And I have felt <laughs> how hot that is in the desert. The middle of the day is the best time to take a, not the best time to take a long walk carrying a heavy clay jar, but she did because she didn't want to come in contact with those who disapproved of her lifestyle. And then Jesus shocks the woman when he speaks to her, and he says to her, give me a drink. And this statement moves from shock to curiosity, and she says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink of me, who am a Samaritan woman? So this woman was surprised by Jesus' request for water, for him to ask for water because that was contrary to the Jewish practices of that day. Jews were not to accept anything from a Samaritan. So Jesus responded to her question with an answer meant to pique her curiosity and to create a thirst for eternal life. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. What he's saying to her is there is a spiritual thirst that only Jesus Christ can satisfy. Now, the people of the desert would have known immediately what he was talking about when he used that term, living water. Water was their life. It, you, and, and they knew you don't drink water out of cisterns that has water that's stagnant because it's dangerous. So when you can find living water, that's priceless. When I hear the word living water, I cannot help but think of our time spent at En Gedi, which is a picture of living water in the desert. En Gedi is directly west of the Dead Sea, and it's a very steep climb to get there, as you can see. <laughs> uh, these are some of the ancient caves where young David hid from his enemy, King Saul. And he cried out to God from these caves. And so these words, stronghold, hiding places, refuge, and rock, they really come alive when you see these places. And I remember looking up at this site and thinking, oh my, David, you were really hiding yourself in the rock up there. The highest location of Angedi is where an amazing and beautiful waterfall exists. It's referred to as David's Waterfall. There's a smaller waterfall at the base. But the sheer beauty of this waterfall is astonishing, and I'm told it's totally worth the hot, rocky climb to get there. But it's very dangerous walk to get there. Uh, many have fallen. And so um, my husband, Barry, and I chose to stay at the lower waterfall, and my son and daughter-in-law went up there, and then they took this picture but they said it's a beautiful spring of fresh water gushing out of limestone, tumbling down the cliffs on its way to the depths of the Dead Sea. 
It's a very popular place in Israel. Um, it's a national park where about half a million people come throughout the year to be refreshed. So when Jesus said, Indeed, the water I give you will become a spring of water within them, welling up to eternal life, he was using imagery she would know and she could identify with. And so she says, You know, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. This was the opening Jesus needed to reach her soul and talk to her about her life. So Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. I have no husband. That's the shortest statement she made in the whole conversation. Lord, Jesus says, you have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. Before anyone can understand the need for a Savior, they must first see themselves as God sees them, a sinner, a need of salvation by grace. Because we never see ourselves until we see ourselves through the eyes of the Lord Jesus. He often drives us to God to reveal ourselves. And the Lord Jesus reveals to her the complete knowledge of everything she was trying to hide. And so finally, she says to him, Sir, uh, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. You know what she's doing right here in this conversation? She wants to get Jesus to debate religion <laughs> uh, and move the conversation away from her relationships and lifestyle choices. But the Lord Jesus said, but the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. It's just like I said at the beginning. It's not where you worship, but who you worship and how you worship. She did not need to go anywhere special to find God. True worship finds God in every place. God is not confined to places or things. We can worship God anywhere in the spirit of his truth. Jesus' answer disarms all of her defenses the woman can come up with. And finally, all she can say is, well, I know this, that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus gives her a powerful revelation that the Gospels report him doing only twice. He verbally identifies himself as the Messiah to her. I who speak to you am he. The clearest statement made by the Lord Jesus that he is the Messiah is given and spoken to an adulterous woman from the despised Samaritan race. There were no large crowds there. There was no public place, no beautiful buildings, simply a personal conversation. And the woman at that moment put her faith in Christ and had eternal life. And immediately, she did not want to keep this to herself. Have you been like that when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Did you just want to go out and tell the whole world? That was she. She even left her water pot behind. And she went into the city, and remember that's half a mile away. And I think she was booking it. 
because she had a story to tell. No, not a story about herself, a story about the Messiah. And it says immediately she went to the city and proclaimed she had met a man who had told her everything she had ever done. She said he has the power to see into the depths of the human heart. When you consider how little spiritual truth this woman had, her zeal puts us to shame. But God used her simple testimony, and many people then came to the well to meet the Lord Jesus. She was the least likely one of her village to win over the entire village for Christ. And then they finally said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Amazing. And this all started with a conversation of the Lord Jesus coming to her, allowing her to tell her story. He didn't condemn her. He didn't shame her. He offered her his living water, eternal life. Remember, eternal life is a permanent, present possession. And she left that well a saved person. So as we leave Jacob's well, we have our own wells, ladies, to think about. We have many life experiences from which to draw from our wells of God's faithfulness and to refresh others with Jesus Christ and his living water. I... Uh, I was privileged to speak to teach for all of my 30-some years, and I would have a variety of ages in my classroom. And sometimes I would have what they call non-traditional students. Don't you love that title? But non-traditional students were those students who were 50 years old, 60 years old, yes, even sometimes 70 years old that were be in my class. And those people would sit there rather intimidated and they look around at all the young people and they think, oh, mm, they got a lot of stories. I don't know what I'm going to write about. And I would say to them, listen, your wells are deep. <laughs> your wells are deep. You have a lot from which to draw from that well and share your stories with others. And just think about us as believers in Jesus Christ, how deep our wells are. And we can draw from God's faithfulness and his love and his tenderness and kindness and bring that out. And in our conversations, we can share that with others. And we can help others to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We can usher their souls to the greatness of our God. Ladies, we know God's grace powerfully. So we choose to believe the best about others. We yoke our lives with others so we can share our lives and our stories with them. So looking at these two conversations today with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, I can say this, no conversation is an accident or without a divine purpose. That was true what we read, and that's true in your life too. You have different conversations than I do, but God has appointed you to have those conversations. And you have everything you need by the power of the Holy Spirit for these warm and loving conversations. Next time when we get together, we're going to have a conversation on parables. And we're going to travel to the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to go to the surrounding towns of Jesus' day. We're going to go to Bethsaida. We're going to go to Capernaum. I'm going to show you Jesus' boat. 
which was discovered in 1986 on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's a very interesting story. We're also going to meet the disciples. Uh, we're going to show, I'm going to show you where they lived and what brought them to the Lord Jesus. And you're going to listen to a few of Jesus' parables and the locations where he spoke them. So please don't put away your backpacks or your hiking shoes or your water bottles because on October 29th, we're going to continue our tour and lessons of Messiah Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for just the lovely Lord Jesus Christ. I stand amazed at the presence of him. I thank you, Father, that he showed us you. He showed us that you are a God of love and kindness and empathy and understanding. And I trust, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can show that to others as well through our conversations. Thank you, Father, for each woman who is here uh, this afternoon. I thank you, Father, for the time of fellowship that we're going to have, the ladies who brought the food and prepared this for us. What a blessing it is. Oh, Father, we have everything of which to rejoice, and may we do that today. Rejoice in Christ our Savior, in whose name I pray. Amen.